0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hey, everybody, Dave here with a quick request. If you could leave us a review on whatever platform it is you listen to this show, it'll help spread the word and grow our audience. So please take a few minutes and share why you think this podcast is a valuable part of your day. Thanks. Here's the show.
0: We're seeing a whole bunch of kits just like this around stealing the stimulus money that's going to the SBA and the banks.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my interview with Curtis Minder. He works with a company called GroupSense, and they've been commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Dark Web. And we are back. Joey got some uh, follow up from a listener, uh, mm-hmm. wrote in and said, Dave and Joe, I've been enjoying your podcast for a long time, and you often talk about good password habits, not vaporous hygiene like SSO, MFA, and password managers. Yet, for all the time I've been listening, you never include biometrics on the list. Why is that not discussed? Surely the technology is beyond the silly putty attack of old. Plus, wouldn't it yield a suitably long, unguessable random password while saving time and hassle when crossing security boundaries to different systems? It's a solution that literally always on hand and can have an MFA alternative when wearing a bandage. We used to trust a signature, but no longer than we had credit cards protected by a supplementary number on the back of the card. But we hand over all the information when requested to anybody and everybody for any reason. There's no security really anymore because people are dumb on the whole. So why isn't biometrics being championed? Is it because Jason Bourne can circumvent it using MacGyver's toenail clipping? He's a little (laughs) smiley there. Right. Uh,
2: What do you make of this, Joe? Is, uh, Is our listener on to something here? I am not a fan of biometrics. And the biggest reason I'm not a fan of biometrics is because you can't change them. He talks about the silly putty attack, but that's not the only kind of attack there is against biometrics. A lot of these biometrics, like your fingerprint, it doesn't store your fingerprint. It stores some mathematical representation of your fingerprint. And if that gets breached... There's nothing you can do to change your fingerprint like a password. We've
1: seen stories where uh, people have had high enough resolution photographs where someone's like waving their hand or something and they can go in close enough and pull a fingerprint.
2: Right. And they can reproduce a fingerprint. He talks about the silly putty attack where we may be beyond that. I don't know. But we're certainly advancing in the field of 3D printing a lot (laughs) to the point where you can actually 3D print fingerprints. We saw a story about that a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, actually, I spoke to some researchers uh, over at Cisco Talos. Uh, I'll be running on an upcoming episode of Research Saturday about that very thing, about research they did with 3D printing and fingerprints. Spoiler alert, uh, it works, but it's not easy.
2: (laughs) Right. Well, exactly. Um, And it's not easy. I'm one to say that anything that moves us in a more secure direction is good. And right now, these fingerprints are not easy to reproduce, but that will become easier over time. And it doesn't matter how old you get. Your fingerprints will always be the same. There's nothing you can do to change them. And that's really my biggest problem with all the biometrics is they're immutable. Yeah.
1: yeah. It, it's interesting to me, like, um, I you know, I use Face ID on my phone, mm-hmm. uh, which works great most of the time. It's having a little bit of trouble with uh, masks lately. <laughs> but ah, just... uh, In my mind, the biometric things for unlocking your phone, I think for most people, the benefit there is that, People who weren't using any password before because it slowed them down right. now are using the biometrics because they're much faster and they give you pretty much instant access to your device. So in my mind, that's a good balance between increasing your security, maybe an imperfect increase of your security, right? way better than nothing, mm-hmm. right? Yep. but easy to use. And when you want to get in your phone, easy to use and frictionless is the way to go.
2: Yep, yep. And I, I use a, a fingerprint to access my phone. And and yep. I think it's fine for that use case. But when you start talking about moving across networks and going from one segment to the next, I'm less likely to be in favor of that. I mean, it's okay. It's fine. It adds another layer. But like I said, it's it's immutable. And for that reason alone, I think that we need a better solution.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending in uh, that question. It's a good one. Uh, let's move on to our stories. Uh, I'll kick things off this week. My story comes from ZDNet, and this is uh, titled "Network of Fake QR Code Generators Will Steal Your Bitcoin." Hmm.
2: Now, Joe, I don't. Have you have any direct experience with Bitcoin? I have some Bitcoin, small amount of Bitcoin. Do you? Yes, I, I do not. Like maybe, uh, maybe it's worth like fifteen dollars right now. <laughs> okay, so
1: you're, you're not quite uh lighting cigars with $100 bills of your Bitcoin investments. No, I'm not. Well, it turns out that Bitcoin addresses are by design long. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Which makes them hard to use. Yes. So, you know, you have to be careful. You have to and of course you have to have them exactly right because there, we've had many stories about people losing their Bitcoin addresses or their passwords and the money's just gone. Right. right.
2: If you if you lose the keys to access your wallet, then that money will remain where it is on the blockchain forever.
1: Mm hmm. So there are some services out there who claim to be uh, converting your Bitcoin address to a QR code mm-hmm. and a QR code is a little that little scannable pattern that it's, uh, a, it's a barcode. It's a barcode. Yeah, you Right. 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 Barcode. Yep. and uh, I guess QR codes kind of had their their rise and fall a couple years ago. Some organizations were trying to get them to catch on from a consumer point of view, you know, right. putting them on for advertisements and things like that. And it seems like they've sort of fallen off in popularity with that, but they still have their uses. And so one of them is that they're trying to make it easier for people to access their bitcoins. By using these QR codes instead of having to keep track of this long Bitcoin address. Right. Well, turns out that there are people out there who have spun up websites that claim to do this. But instead of doing this, basically, they just take your Bitcoin address and they go and take your money.
2: Huh. So they're, they're pretending to offer a service that lets you access your, your Bitcoin with your, with your private keys and instead they're just taking the private keys because you have to provide the private keys. <laughs> right, yeah, this exactly. <laughs> is Yeah. Here's the thing with cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency that's out there like Zcash or Monero or you kind of have to know how they work, right? You ha- you have to know what's going on. And basically in a nutshell, with Bitcoin in particular, the way it works is your Bitcoin address is your public key and the fact that you possess the private keys proves that you are the owner of the public key mm. for the mm-hmm. network, right? So if somebody gets your private keys, if somebody asks you for your private keys and you give it to them, you have given them literally your identity. That's what you've done.
1: It's like giving them your username and password.
2: It is more than that. It's actually it's actually giving them the way to prove irrefutably who you are hmm. or who that, that you are who you say you are. And it lets them just – They can, they then have access to any Bitcoin that you have at that address or with that identity, and they can send it wherever they want. And once they send it, it's gone. You cannot get it back.
1: Hmm. I think it's interesting they they branded these scam services as Bitcoin transaction accelerators.
2: <laughs> They're going to accelerate that <laughs> transaction. I guarantee you, there's going to be some very fast transactions, Dave. Yeah. So far, they've uh, scammed over forty five thousand dollars from folks. Okay, so that's actually a small amount of money that they've scammed. I would yeah. have anticipated this being a lot. More so, I'm, I'm glad to see that it's only $45,000. I'm hoping that they're, they're scamming that from a, a large group of people so that not anybody is being hurt in big ways here. People like me who have maybe $15 worth of Bitcoin, as so many of these things do, targeting the
1: unsophisticated user, Absolutely. the casual, you know, Bitcoin person who doesn't really understand. That uh, is that is exactly the market
2: they're going after.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
2: it's because yeah. you know somebody who is steeped in the Bitcoin world, who understands what the blockchain is and how it works. And I'm not going to go into that because we try not to be technical in this show. Uh, <laughs> but they're going to look at this and they go. Why would I do that? That's just going to let you steal everything from me. Right, but somebody right. else who says, "Oh, I got the Bitcoin, and I'm going to be rich." Keeping track of these numbers is really a pain. Right? Yeah keep keeping track of all these private. Let me let me have this guy keep track of my private keys. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a bad idea. And yeah. it's and that's exactly who they're preying on is the unsuspecting of people who are just who just are ignorant of how it works. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're stupid. It's just because they just don't understand how it works and they haven't invested the time to understand it. They may have invested time to understand some feature of it, but they haven't thoroughly gone into it and uh, looked at it.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, buyer beware if you uh, see ads or uh, promotions for these QR code generating sites Chances are they may be out to steal your Bitcoin. So Absolutely. Be, be cautious of yeah, that.
2: Do not, do not do that. And do your due diligence when you're looking at where you're going to keep your Bitcoin. If you're going to keep it in an exchange or if you're going to keep it in a wallet, if you're going to keep it in a software wallet or a hardware wallet, learn what all that stuff means. Learn what yeah. it means. It's very important. All right. Well, that
1: is my story this week, Joe. What do you
2: have for us, Dave? I'm gonna uh, about four episodes ago, four or five episodes ago, I said I was gonna every about once a month do the old classic cons. Yeah. So I've got two today that are interesting old cons. These have been around okay. for years, or for decades, centuries, even. Okay. The first one is called the Ring Reward, and that's kind of hard to say. It's a tongue twister, so I'm just going to call <laughs> it the the Ring Scam, the Found Ring Scam. Okay. Um, so what happens is. You're in a public place and a distressed woman asks you if you have found a ring and she's looking around like she's looking for a ring. And she says she has lost one and she's heartbroken. This ring was very important to her for some reason. Maybe it it was an engagement ring. Maybe it was a ring that her grandmother gave her. Maybe Mm. it was some other, you know, some other valuable thing that it doesn't have meaning to anybody else, but it has meaning to her, that kind of thing. And she gives you her contact information, and a description of the ring. And she says, whoever finds this ring, I'm going to give them a huge reward. And she will be specific about the amount of money, right? Hmm. This ring is so important to me. If somebody finds it, I am going to give them a $500 reward. Okay. Because it means that much to me. The, the ring it is, it may not even be worth $500. I think it's worth 5 yeah, she will come up with some story. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But after yeah. she gives you the contact information, she disappears, And she, uh, on the auspices, she's got to continue looking for the ring. Sometime later, another person will approach you and they will say, hey, is this your ring? I found it, right? Mm. And they'll show you a ring that looks just like the one you were told about earlier by the woman looking for the ring, right? So Mm. inside your head, you're going, that woman is going to give me some money. She's lost the ring. Here's the ring right here. And what they're relying on here is for you to put this together, you know, these are two different people. These are two separate events. You don't really realize these people are working in cahoots, but you go, well, I know whose ring it is. So if you give me the ring, I will give it to, to the person who owns it. The person, of course, will go, well, I'm not just going to give you the ring. How do I know? I mean, and they're hoping that you'll go, I'll give you some amount of money for the ring, right? Hmm. Like, I'll give you 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, thinking that you're going to get 500 bucks from the woman who has lost the ring.
0: Uh, so they're preying on
2: two things here. They're preying on your greed and your, your good nature, right? And I see. Returning the ring. Now, the ring is worthless, right? It doesn't have any value. And the contact information is bogus. So mm-hmm. you, give, you give the second person some amount of money. He gives you a ring, and then he disappears. And now, you're, now you've got a worthless ring, and they've got your money. And, and that's how it works. Now, One ring to scam them all. Right. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Uh, I did a little bit of uh, of research on this, and I found there's an even simpler version of this. There's a, a website called Europe for Visitors that talks about the Paris gold ring scam. And it's it's hmm. it's a it's the same kind of scam, but it's, it's simpler. It only involves one scammer. And this person will walk up to you, and they will say they found a ring, and they'll ask if it's yours. And on this article on uh, Europeforvisitors.com, they have a picture of the ring, and it looks like a pretty – pretty real ring i mean the picture looks like it's a gold ring
1: Mm -hmm. yeah you know it reminds me of the time remember i shared the story of uh the time i got scammed by someone who was on the side of the road who claimed that their car had broken down and they were looking for help and one of the things that they offered me was a ring yeah you know hold on hold on to this ring I'll, i'll give you this ring as as collateral you know uh right and it was a very convincing-looking golden ring. <laughs>
2: right, golden ring. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the story that this, that this person tells on this, on, in this article, the scammer then says, after you say, no, that's not my ring, they go, well, you want to buy it? In this story, the scammer goes, I'll sell it to you for 50 euros. And the, the woman that she was trying to scam goes, no, no, you, you found the ring. It's yours. It's your lucky day. And then she goes, 20 euros. Hmm. So it quickly drops. So this ring is worth a lot less than 20 euros. right? Mm -hmm. It's a cheap ring. In the article on uh, Europe for Visitors, they said they got accosted by four different people who were running this scam Hmm. while they were in Paris. So it's very common. I thought that was an interesting scam. Yeah, yeah, it is. The next one that I found was the, the bank examiner scam. Here's how this one works. You're approached by someone somehow. They may give you a phone call. They may approach you in person. But they're claiming to be uh, someone who's investigating a bank teller. And they may say that they're from the bank or they may say that they're with law enforcement and that they want to test the honesty of this bank teller. So they will ask you to go to the bank and withdraw some money. And then they'll say, we need to examine the money when you get it out. So you go to the bank, you withdraw the money, And they say that they're trying to find out if this person is passing counterfeit bills. So you go to the Mm -hmm. bank, you withdraw some money from your account, and then they meet you afterwards. And they may even have special instructions like make sure you get everything in 20s right? Because hmm. we think they're they're passing fake 20s or make sure you get it in hundreds. We think they're passing fake $100 bills. And then you hand them the money and then they do one of two things in, in the stories I found. They will either give you a, an official looking receipt and say, you'll get your money back in a couple of days with a little bit more for you, or they'll do some kind of sleight of hand trick and give you a bunch of fake bills back. So- you go in, you say, uh, give me $200 in, in 20s, and the teller gives you 10, $20 bills, and you go out to the scammer and say, hey, give me 10, $20 bills, and they go, okay, let's take a look at it, and they they look at it, and they hand you back what you think is your money, but it's not hmm. your money. It's counterfeit bills, and you mm-hmm. go on your way, and they disappear, and they thank you very much for your service. That's basically how the scam works. Now, there is another way the scam can start, and I, I found an account of this that is absolutely terrifying. They will approach you in the parking lot of a mall or at a store and they'll look very official and they'll go, how did you pay for that? And if you say I paid cash, and they'll go, yeah, we thought so. The money you passed was counterfeit and now you're in trouble for buying stuff with counterfeit money. And of course, that is the the fear of you know, the, the government coming after you again. So this is somebody impersonating law enforcement, which of course is a crime, but you know, laws don't stop people from committing crimes. They just provide mm-hmm. us a way to punish people who do things right yeah so once they say that they're hoping that you go well I got this money from the bank this morning they go hmm the bank you say that's interesting <laughs> uh, which bank was it and you tell them which bank and they go yeah okay now this is starting to add up right uh, mm-hmm. we need your help on this and you're gonna help us and if you help us then we won't prosecute you and and then they the scam proceeds as normal right it's you you're going off to the bank to get the uh, get some money out they're gonna switch the money out for you and give you back fake bills or just take it and go. It's unfortunate when this happens, but this reminds me a lot of an episode of The Simpsons uh, (laughs) from, I think, season five. But when Homer gets these college kids expelled from school and they go out and they say, we'll be fine, Mr. Simpson. And Snake shows up and goes, wallet inspector. (laughs) <laughs> they all hand over their wallets. Right. And Snake goes, I can't believe that worked. But that's what this reminds me of. You know, it, it's not as simple as just walking up and going, wallet inspector. You're actually using the fear, particularly when you're accusing somebody of, of passing counterfeit bills, the fear of prosecution. And that is a very effective tool. We see that used as a hook in a lot of these scams where people start trying to scare you into compliance. And it's just a way to short-circuit you into not thinking about it and behaving the way they want you to behave. So you've got to be mindful of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, good classic ones that are still being used today. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from Twitter user Courtney Bain, who is at CBain0, and this is uh, titled Humanitarian Gesture, and it goes like this. The world is facing an unprecedented challenge with communities and economies everywhere affected by the growing COVID-19 pandemic. The world is coming together for combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Governments, organizations, and individuals from across industries and sectors are coming together to help respond to this global outbreak. The outpouring of global solidarity and support sparked by this shared challenge has been phenomenal. The World Health Organization, WHO, is leading and coordinating the global effort, supporting countries to prevent, detect, and respond to the pandemic. Everyone who can now support directly the response coordinated by WHO. People and organizations who want to help fight the pandemic and support WHO and partners can now donate through the COVID Solidarity Response Fund for WHO at the secure Bitcoin digital currency address below. You can also scan the barcode below to make your goodwill donation toward this global effort at finding an effective vaccine for the virus. Any amount donated is significant and will go a long way to save lives. Thank you for your donation.
2: Now, it's important to note that uh, when Courtney shared this, he noted that something key is missing from this. Dave, if you were a bad guy and you were going to send out a Bitcoin scam email, what is the one piece of information you'd make sure to include in your email? The Bitcoin address? The Bitcoin address, which is conspicuously (laughs) absent from this email that Courtney received. Hmm. Oops.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine um, the
2: the scammer going to bed and going, God, I feel like
1: I forgot to do something today. I (laughs) I don't know what it is. It is nagging feeling like there's something – I worked all day long and I feel as though I just missed out on doing something. ah, well, I'm sure it will come to me. And then he wakes up in the morning and goes, all right, time to count the money and there's nothing there. Right, right. <laughs> so thank uh, you, Courtney.
2: Yeah. Well, also interesting that it it uh, it also refers to a barcode, which we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah. Well, there they're, you know you can turn your public key into a barcode just fine. That makes it easy for people to send you Bitcoin. But what you don't want to do is turn your private keys over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to uh, Courtney Bain for sending that into us. If you have something you think might be a good catch of the day, send it to us at hacking humans at cyberwire dot com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm JT Kerrigan at JT Kerrigan. And Dave is uh, at Bittner with two T's. Yes. All right. Well, coming up next,
1: my conversation with Curtis Minder. He's with a company called Group Sense, and they've been commemorating the 20th anniversary of the dark web. And we are back. Uh, Joe recently had the pleasure of speaking with Curtis Minder. He is with a company called Group Sense, and they published some research uh, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the dark web. So uh, interesting conversation with Curtis Minder about that. Here's my conversation.
0: The dark web and dark net are are largely used interchangeably, you know, widely understood to have some illegal activity tied to them. But they're not just used for, for illegal purposes. There's legitimate uses. Mostly we're talking about networks that either require some special connectivity, uh, whether that's a a software client or something like that, and have some anonymity tied to their use so that folks can kind of say and do what they like. The deep web also plays a role in this, where there are components or networks that aren't necessarily as anonymous, uh, but they require some paywall or authentication component to get inside them. And largely any content that's unindexed by a by a traditional search engine would be in this category as well.
1: Now, you and your team recently marked the uh, 20th anniversary of the dark web. Did, do you have any insights on, on the history? Any
0: idea who where where the term was originally coined? I don't know about exactly when they started using the term, but I mean the the, the original sort of iteration of what we now define as the dark net was really uh, started around 2000 with Freenet. And F- Freenet had a similar concept to what we now know as the Tor network or the darknet as we know it today, basically around anonymous communication. Back in the 2000s, because we didn't have things like Bitcoin and blockchain, there weren't a lot of transactions that occurred because that, that component was, was somewhat traceable. But what really happened on Freenet was a lot of free speech communication and a fair amount of pornography and illegal pirated content was traded, but not necessarily for money.
1: Are there any common misperceptions that people have about the dark web?
0: I do a lot of talks. And one of the questions I get from folks who aren't in the space that we're in is, could I accidentally end up on the dark net or dark web? And, you know, generally the answer is no, that's not something that accidentally happens to someone. You you have to deliberately download some software, install it, know how to correctly configure it and use it to get on the dark net. So, I mean, that's one of the common misconceptions is that you could accidentally end up on the dark net. Uh, Another misconception, which I mentioned earlier is, you know, people think that it's, it's entirely used for illegal activity. It's It's not. There are legitimate uses for it. And in fact, the original concept, as with many technologies, was was a positive one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, they all sort of it's an enabler for a lot of different activities. Right.
1: Where do you see things going? How do you see it evolving over time?
0: We track that pretty closely. The dark net economy that we know today, something they're estimating, something like the cybercrime economy is now one trillion dollars. And a lot of that occurs in the in the darknet. There's something at any given time there's something around a, a few hundred darknet marketplaces. And these marketplaces look a lot like you and I would recognize as like eBay or Amazon, except they're occurring in these these underground marketplaces. We're seeing a lot of what I would call displacement where a lot of the, the marketplaces are going to other mediums besides traditionally tour. Um, so we're we're seeing marketplaces pop up in, in other mediums like Open Bazaar is is one. And they're doing transactions and, and communications tools like Telegram and Discord, which is Discord really is, is for gamers, but there's a whole dark net sort of activity and economy inside Discord now. Um, so we're seeing them sort of spread out their activity uh, largely due to what they call exit scams that are occurring in the dark net, as well as... Law enforcement's crackdown. Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of a lot of spreading out.
1: Can you give us some insights of the work that you all do to be able to do the research that you do and track the activities going on there? How does that process work? What, what sort of uh, tools do you have to use to be able to to have the that view inside?
0: Mostly, we're in the intelligence business, and my belief is the intelligence business is largely a, a human operation. So we do have. A pretty substantial research team. Their main mission is to understand the mechanics of these marketplaces and the activity, and where it's moving to, and why, and and where, and basically where we need to be looking. Then we couple that that research with uh, software that we built internally to basically monitor those communications and and bring that data back where we can analyze it to see, hey, look, are these guys talking about something that's interesting to our customers, whether that's stolen data, which often it is, leaked credentials, things like that. So it's, a, it's really a coupling. Uh, I like to say we bookend the technology with humans. There's humans on the front end that, that do the sort of the research and make sure we're looking for the right things. There's technology in the middle that's that's doing the heavy lifting as far as getting the data someplace where we can make it useful to us. And then on the back end, we've got uh, some more humans making sure that that data is meaningful to our clients and and that they understand what they're looking at.
1: Does the the technology that enables the dark web does that continue to grow in in sophistication I'm thinking of how you know encryption grows uh, more complex more powerful over time are are these tools for anonymity or are they tracking along in in a similar way
0: less so in the darknet uh, tools and more in the in the in the point to point communication side so when you're looking at tools like signal and and, and stuff like that for point to point communications Those certainly are making huge technological leaps on on anonymity and and encryption and privacy. Other than relative feature updates, the, the Tor network is basically similar to the way it was when it was invented in the 2000s. One of the things that we've seen occur in the economy is sort of a dumbing down or simplification of the exploitation of enterprises and or governments. And what what basically the threat actors are doing en masse is creating sort of fraud kits or malware kits. The net effect to the cybersecurity community is it's lessening the necessary sophistication of the threat actor. They can buy these tools and just implement them with a how-to guide and and pull out the data or pull out the capital. In fact, we're seeing a whole bunch of kits just like this around stealing the stimulus money that's going through the SBA and the banks, where there's just kits that you can buy with the stolen PII coupled with the right forms and a a how-to guide on how to get that money without having to pay it back. And so the, the, the dumbing down of the sophistication means more and more people who all they really need is a Tor browser and a, and a Bitcoin wallet can go in and buy a kit and defraud the government based on this how-to guide. And so that's what we're seeing a lot of lately.
2: All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting talk, huh? Good talk. Very very interesting interview. One of the first things he says kind of strikes it, one of my little pet peeves, I guess, is that I have not seen any standardization on what terms like dark web, deep web, hidden services, what any these... St- Terms mean or Mm. dark net, deep net. Who knows? When we say these things, some people may mean one thing, and some people may mean another. But so it's important to kind of clarify it. But then there are other things that people refer to as the dark nets, right? As it it may be like a, a VPN, like the one that you use at work, could technically be a dark net because nobody else can see the traffic that's going across your network. Uh, mm-hmm. from your home network to your business network, and it's dark. Or there may just be computers sitting out there on the internet that don't have any index content on them, but to provide services for people who know what those services are, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of business-to-business services can happen this way. And some people refer to that as the dark net. And then, of yeah. course, there's the deep web, and all, uh, which is paywalled stuff. Uh, the, the terminology gets very confusing, but it's interesting nonetheless,
1: yeah, I, I think there's a tendency for people to refer to anything that tries to keep hidden and has a, of a criminal nature. The, the, that's sort of been put under the popular umbrella of the dark web. Right. Whereas right. the people who are actually working in the space are more specific about what they mean when they say dark web or deep web and those sorts of things. They have yes. more specific meanings, but it seems like dark web has become a catch-all for, exactly. the, for the, the notion of these sorts of things.
2: Yeah. And to your point, there is a lot of criminal activity that occurs on networks like the Tor network. And Curtis pointed out that that activity is actually moving not just in Tor, but also on these other peer-to-peer services like, uh, like Telegram and WhatsApp end-to-end encryption provides a great tool for criminal activity, but we can't really focus on the criminal activity here because these also have, and Curtis said this as well, these also have legitimate purposes. Uh, getting around censorship, we in America think that's a very legitimate use of these kind of technologies, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're in favor of that. Uh, no, you will not accidentally find yourself on the dark web. <laughs> that's a <laughs> That's a
1: good you're point. Gonna if you're to stumble a take a wrong turn and find yourself in a bad neighborhood.
2: Right. Yeah, that that will not happen, particularly if you're talking about the Tor network. Uh, that requires you to go out and get some very specific software, and you can start exploring the dark web. I don't recommend it, but be careful when you do that, because like I said, there is a lot of criminal activity that happens on the web, uh, yeah. and some of it's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that he says the cybercrime economy is estimated to be a $1 trillion economy now. I would like to... Know where he got that number because I will start quoting that in my in my talks because <laughs> that is a very big number a one trillion dollar economy that is a large percentage of the gross world product which is the sum of all the gross domestic products on the on the planet right in 2014 that number was 77 trillion dollars and Curtis is saying that the cybercrime economy is one trillion dollars that's more than one percent of the global economy is hmm. being made in the black markets here. That's amazing to me.
1: I'm pondering whether that's even plausible or not. Part of me is saying it could be, and part of me wonders if it's even possible.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I'd I'd like to see where he got the number. I would, I would love to see that. He talks about exit scams. These are a a pretty good scam that are easy to pull off on on the dark web. So here's how this works. Let's say I want to buy something from somebody on the dark net. So we have a, a Bitcoin. We each have Bitcoin wallets. Well, how do I know that I'm going to send Bitcoin to somebody and they're actually going to send me a product? So there's a third party that can be involved that's called an escrow, right? So what an escrow agent does is he has a Bitcoin wallet or a cryptocurrency wallet of some kind, and he acts as a middleman. And he takes a small fee. So he receives your Bitcoin. He tells the seller that he has received your Bitcoin and that he's holding it until the seller sends you the product. Once you have confirmed you received the product, he sends the seller most of the Bitcoin and keeps a small percentage for himself. So over time, these guys build up a lot of trust. And over time, they start accumulating a large amount of, of cryptocurrency. And then at some point in time, they realize, hey, there's a big payout here. And they just disappear and they take all the cryptocurrency with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So mm-hmm. it's um, – and, and there's nothing you can do to track them down because they've been completely anonymous the entire time just like you and the, sell- and the seller have been. So yeah. you're hosed.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, it's certainly uh, interesting that the, the dark web has been around for 20 years. 20? Uh, 20, yeah, 20 time years. Time flies, huh? <laughs>
2: yeah. It started as FreeNet, and the, now there's Tor and other, other networks that are coming up. They're all built over top of the internet. You know, you don't need a special physical connection. They all still run on the internet, and the same technologies that underpin the internet are underpinning these dark nets or the, yeah. the, the dark web.
1: Well, and I think it's also just shows that wherever there's a, d- a demand for something, there will be a market. It, it, you know, those right. two things go together. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, there's
2: one more point I wanted to talk about. Curtis talked about these attacks are becoming – essentially commodities. And that's bad because it really lowers the barrier of entry to the field. But I think there is an upside if you're paying attention to this. Because it's being simplified and commoditized, if you will, then you can go out and you can find these things and recognize them very, very quickly. I think this is a problem that's solvable. I don't think, that's my conjecture, is that this this is not a, a difficult problem to overcome. We just have to do it right.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, interesting insight. And of course, uh, we want to thank Curtis Minder for joining us. And we want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the Startup Studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. and I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.